denomination has specifically targeted three. Last week, we introduced a group of people to you from Senegal called the Wolof people. And in your handout, you were given a prayer card, some basic information about them, where they're from, and what the initiative looks like. This week, we're starting with a new group to introduce. They're also from Senegal, but Guinea. And if you don't know where those two um, countries are, there's going to be a map that comes up a little bit later that shows you that. And to help us understand a little bit more about the Fulani people, will you please welcome to our stage Mr. Griffin Lindquist. Gillian Shoran Howell have faithfully served the Lord in Africa for many years. They are now reaching out to the Fulani in Senegal. The Fulani have very few believers and little ac access to the gospel. Who, where do the, the Fulani live? The Fulani are found in 20 African nations, mainly in Nigeria, Senegal, Senegal, and Guinea. Globally, there are more than 6 million Fulani. They are currently diverse, forming the largest pastoral nomadic group in the world. Their major, their major region is Islam. Please pray. Pray for an ab abundant grain harvest to help food feed poor people and for an abundant spiritual harvest among the Fulani. Pray that many churches will be planted among them. Pray for Gary and Sharon Howell as they begin serving the Lord in Senegal. And for our international workers in other countries who are serving among the Fulani, sharing the gospel through storytelling, digging wells, and providing education, education, whatever. And work experience for young girls, men, and women. Pray for Fulani who are persecuted, whatever, by their families because they have decided to follow Jesus. Pray that they will be able to stand as strong witnesses to saving power of Jesus Christ. The end. That are up here are going to. Uh, go back to their seats, but I'm going to stay here because today I get to share my testimony of thanks. Graham's excited. So what I wanted to share this morning, Mo, sorry, yeah, it's important. I forget, not, everybody doesn't know who I am already. Um, my name is Dan, Dan Murphy. There's my wife, Kristen. She just walked in with our daughter, Abby, who's straight from her first ever dance class. <laughs> so um, Kristen shared her testimony last week, the week before, two weeks ago. Norm was last week. Um, and she, you know, shared a, a lot about um, her journey, our journey together to welcome our daughter, Abby, into our family. It was you know, a trying time. Those things don't always happen right away, in case you were wondering. So, you know about that. I'm not going to rehash that. Today, I wanted to share um, the story about how I was, how I was saved. Um, because I haven't really told it in a long time. So, I, uh, I know there's quite a few people in this room um, who were around around that time. Um, so, for me, in talking about a testimony of thanks, that's definitely something um, that I'm thankful for. Uh, I was 18 years old, so that means it was 12 years ago. You can do the math. You know how old I am. Um, Norm would say, I'm old now. I'm old now. Um, so, it started with a missionary, a missionary named Kristen. So uh, it, was really, it was more like missionary dating, if you guys know what that is. <laughs> um, 
So I, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and I had religion class. I had my first communion. I was confirmed when I was in the eighth grade, and I knew the Bible stories. To say that I was Christian would probably be a stretch. Um, so it was, it was really through this process of um, meeting Kristen, uh, her inviting me to Unionville Alliance Church, where she was attending at the time and going to the youth uh, events there. And I remember her taking me there. And, you know, we, Chris and I, we went to different high schools, but we had common friends, so that's, that's how we kind of met. Uh, we both had a love for music. I knew she was a musician. She knew I was a musician. Um, she uh, dated the drummer of my band when we were in high school, so that's how we first met. Um, but she, she said, you know, I, I'm going to this church, there's Sunday night services, you should come check it out. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. Sounds, uh, interesting. So, um, in the, this, it was the spring of our final year in high school, she invited me out, and there's just something different about how they were doing things, the music, the preaching. I remember specifically the song One Way by Hillsong United. It was like massive at the time and they sang it like every week, but it was really like easy to get the hook and it's catchy and I, I just got so behind that, right? I was used to organ and piano and choral music in church and to see that, I didn't realize, really realize that it didn't have to be that or that there was something else other than kind of my experience with that. Um, so that in and of itself, like, spoke to me in a huge way. Um, the preaching was something I'd never really experienced, the concept that I could have a direct personal relationship with Christ. Um, that was so appealing to me that to know that God cares about me specifically, about who I am and wanting to wanting what's best for me to build into my life, um, that I would, that I would seek him and come to know him. Um, so I grew up with that knowledge of, of Christ and, uh, my parents are believers and always encouraged me and my, my brothers to come to church and, and read our Bibles and, and all of this. But, um, it, I, I don't know, I had a curiosity, but I never like dove right into it. Um, so, Personally, I gave my life to Christ at a youth rally in Coburg, which is an awesome place. If you haven't been to Coburg, you should go. It's fun. <clears throat> they have a really nice beach there in the summertime. I, I've never been in the winter. I'm not sure. It might be bleak and desolate, but in the summertime, it's beautiful. So um, I've been attending UAC youth events for a while, meeting tons of new people. Uh, they're on fire for Christ, and it was, it was just so cool. I'd never made... Um, for me, even though, you know, I, I grew up in the Catholic Church and was attending these UAC events and kind of considered myself a Christian, I guess, I, well, by that statement, you can tell I hadn't really committed at that point. Um, so I'd never made the concrete declaration in my heart that Jesus was Lord, uh, and I kind of thought that he was, but the value of drawing a line in the sand and making that clear conscious choice to follow and let people know about it. I hadn't kind of got there yet. So it was in, it was during a worship service and what was the song? You know, a beautiful one, beautiful one. I love you. Beautiful one. I adore. Yeah. So that, that song, man, it just, hit me, and there, with, like, tears streaming down my face, I gave my life to Christ, and it was the most powerful, transformative moment of my life, and I was 18 freaking years old, so it's all downhill from there, no, um, <laughs> it's, it was amazing, this, like, this, this freedom, um, I suddenly had a thirst to get into scripture more, and it came to life, you know, I tried to read my Bible a number of times before that, but uh, it was more out of like a sense of guilt or obligation, not that I wanted to. Uh, and my approach to it was like truly awful. It was like an ultimatum with God. It would be 
all right, I'm going to try this. I'm going to open the page, and you speak to me. Show me what it is, and I'd open it, and it would be like a family lineage or like Jewish dietary law. What, okay, so God, what are you trying to tell me with this? I have no idea. So once I was treating it more like, uh, like what it is, the word of God, you know, previously it was hardly seeking truth, but once I gave my life to Christ, the transformative power of Jesus, it absolutely changed me from the inside out. Uh, and for that, I'm the most thankful. So it's, it's given me the life that I have today, a life that's not all about me, but it's about the people around me. Um, not saying that I'm never selfish, but I certainly understand my selfish, selfishness in a context where I know uh, that I'm not the center. So that um, paradigm shift has, it's, it's everything. It's changed everything. Um, so that's the story. Obviously, there's a lot of things that didn't make the cut. There's been mountaintop moments. I've spent a lot of time in the valley. Um, and what I learned is that living a life dedicated to Jesus doesn't mean <clears throat> that things will be easy. In fact, it probably means the opposite, but it's worth running the race. So I want to share three passages from Scripture, uh, and then I'll be done. And there are, they all center around running the race, and this concept has been really central, right? They, there's, there's a destination. Um, it doesn't come in this life, so we never stop running. Um, so in Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14, it says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to see what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. And it's that constant striving, that constant pushing forward. In Hebrews 12, uh, verses 1 to 2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And finally, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Thank you. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Graham, and I'm glad that you're here because this is the season of thanks. I don't believe that Thanksgiving is one day when you get to have turkey. I believe it's a season. You know, it's probably better off if we could take it as it's a life. But if we can't handle that, then let's at least talk about it as a season. And so thanks for your, your story, Dan. I appreciate that. And, and the history that goes with it. There's, it's not just like one moment everything changes. But one moment everything changes, right? And that's the start of something that we go on. And so we talk about it here as being on a road trip. That we are on a road trip together in earnest pursuit of Jesus Christ. He gives us hope, and he brings us freedom. This is what we believe, and this is the story that we want to tell other people about. So that's what we kind of do. We get together in that way. Um, today, I also want to remind you that you can get some notes, and you can follow along in the, uh, the handout that you were given, maybe when you came in, or you can follow along on the, uh, the screens up here. We'll put some notes up there for you as well. But also, if you follow along, if you like to use your smartphone, you can follow along in the free app called Uversion. Uversion has a tab in the bottom right corner where you can um, click more, look under more, there's events. Um, and then after events, search up into one. And you can follow along that way and you'll find that our notes are there, the scripture passages are there, there's a place for you to make notes, our announcements of what's coming up, that's there. And an online giving link is there as well if that's what you would like to do. Thank you for uh, the many people who have already given online before you got here. We appreciate that. Um, we have a box at the back, the white box there. 
and there's envelopes back there. If you would like to be tax receipted, you can do that. That's fine. Uh, you can do that at the end of the service or whenever you want to do it. It's, uh, it's for you. It's an opportunity for you. It's not an obligation for you. So um, we're in the midst of a building project. So as you can see, it's still going on. And so that's why we, we continue to highlight um, giving from a sense that this is going to help the church, but it's a sense that this is what builds you as well. Part of what grows us in our faith is the trust that God provides. He provides beyond what we think makes sense. And so that's why we participate in this way. It's a spiritual discipline. And so we're involved with that as well. Also in the handout, you'll find that there's a place that you can tear out one corner, one side of it. And if you're visiting with us, if you would, um, if you would take the time, if you wouldn't mind to just fill that out, let us know that you were here. Give us a chance to respond to you. And if you have other questions about things that are more specific, then flip it over on the back of this communication side. And you can take that and you just put it in the, the white box at the back, our communication box. You can put it there as well. So offering can go there and your communication stuff can go there. Um, all right, we're going to, uh, let's stop. Pray with me, please. Kind Father, thank you for the gifts that you have given to us. For us to stop right now and list everything that we have that we can be thankful for would take an enormous amount of time. But for friends, for family, for the chance to move in freedom, for the chance to freely complain about the people who we don't want to be in charge of us, God, we thank you for the freedom that you have given to us. Help us to move and to live in such a way that uh, you work through us to make this world a better place. Right now, as we get steady to, as we get ready to start thinking more about uh, how this stuff might apply to us, God, I ask that you would, you would be kind and generous today and speak, speak to me. I need to hear from you today, and, and then I ask that you would speak through me as well, that somehow something important would be said this morning, and that you would be able to communicate with your people whom you dearly love. For my friends that are here today, God, I pray the same thing, that you will speak to them and that you will also speak through them. We have a right and a responsibility to share the blessing that you have given to us, a blessing that we were given so that we might bless others, to bless all nations. God, we pray that you would work through us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in week three of a series called LSD, Love, Sex, Dating, Don't Lose Your Mind. And remember, as we started at the beginning, the idea is that these fit together. They are... They're building on one another. So if you've missed week one or week two, strongly suggest, please, go back, catch up on our, on our podcast. You can get it through iTunes. Just search into One Community Church. Or you can get it on our website. Just look under the media section. Please, those are there for you, and they help you to connect with what we're going. So for, uh, for those of you who don't know, and for those of you who didn't remember, a framing question that we have been using to, to talk about in this whole series, why does it matter to you? Are you the person you're looking for, is looking for. That's the way we wanted to start. The question hopefully catches some single people before marriage. But I hope it applies very much to those who are married as well. And honestly, the hope that's probably deepest within me right now is that this will connect with people for whom marriage, well, they've had a bad go of it. Things, things have gone wrong and for for those, for whatever reason, that marriage has come and it's been broken apart, I sincerely hope that this can help you move forward. At Into One, you need to know that we are for healthy relationships. We are for great relationships, great marriages. We are for strong and vibrant families. We are for healthy, dedicated, active singles. And we are for healing and for restoration. That's why we're talking about this. Those are the goals that we have in mind. To that end, you need to remember that what you do now sets you up for your future, whether you're married or not. What you do wisely now sets you up for great relationships in the future. What you do unwisely now sets you up for pain, disappointment, and disillusionment in your relationships later on. What we do now makes an incredible difference. And so after listening to so many married people tell me the same things over and over and over, I wanted to give you some of the benefit of their expensive wisdom, wisdom that came through pain. Not all pain brings wisdom, but there is wisdom that we can gain 
potentially from pain. So this series is called LSD, Love, Sex, Dating. Week one, we talked about love. We talked about the right person myth. The myth says, if I can just find the right person, then everything is going to be all right. That's a myth. It's just not true. We need to be the right person. Then last week, we kind of talked about dating and what a biblical uh, view of women looks like. So that means this week, we're at love. We're at sex, right? That's where we are. Cool. Are you weirded out? Are you uncomfortable? We're talking about sex in church. Here we go. Uh, obviously, we're not going to talk about everything to do with sex. Uh, can't possibly do that. We're going to look mostly at one big idea. And, and I think most of us, we have a sense, we know this intuitively, um, but our culture, our culture never talks about this. In fact, they would spend a fair amount of time arguing against this notion. And one of the reasons the culture doesn't bring this up is that it's really not um, marketable. Um, there's no way to monetize this, and that seems to keep it just on the shelf. We'll just leave it there for right now. But if you miss this, if you, you, you can set yourself up for disaster. Remember that in love, in life, in relationships, the consequences do not always arise immediately. But there are pathways that we get on, and they are super hard to get free from. I just want to help as many of you as possible miss this landmine. Then maybe, maybe you can help the people around you miss this landmine as well. So today we're going to be myth busters again. We're going to look at some of those myths and we're going to do some at the beginning and some at the end. Um, so that's what we're uh, focusing on. That's how we're starting up. The first one is this. Here's the first myth. Sex. It's only physical. In other words, if nobody gets pregnant, there's no sexually transmitted disease and nobody gets hurt, then just have yourself a great time. Do whatever you want with whoever you want, wherever you want, whenever you want, because it's just physical. It's like ping pong. It's like touch football. Actually, it's probably more like tackle football. Probably more like tackle football, roll around on the ground and stay on the ground as long as you can. It's probably more like that. But it's just physical. There's no harm done. Just agree and have a great time. It means nothing. But the truth is, the truth is that sex, it's not just physical. And if you treat sex as just physical, you hurt yourself. And eventually, if you get married, you hurt your partner. Single people, you need to know this. Married people all around you in here and wherever you go, they are dealing with the consequences of bad sexual decisions. They might not even understand what the connection is to what they did because it was when they were younger. They can't connect the dots. But for your sake, I want to help connect some dots for us together. So regardless of where you are religiously, regardless of what you believe about God, I want to help us all get to a similar place, uh, a starting place, because this is such an incredibly big deal. I want to ask you some questions. And these questions, they might surface some things that you'd, well, you'd normally choose not to think about. And, and maybe there'll be things that you have not thought about in a long time. Maybe there'll be some connections that, honestly, you just don't like to make. Let me be clear up front. There is no agenda with these questions. These are questions that I do not have answers to. These are questions that even if we were to have answers, I don't think we would all agree on these answers to these questions. I just want to help us move to some common ground in understanding where we're going to go, okay? So again, remember, we are for great sex. And I want you to see that your sexuality is tied deeply to your personhood, and it's smacked, smushed right onto your soul so that when you treat it as just a physical thing, you have the potential to hurt yourselves at the deepest level possible. And I don't want you to do that. And, and you don't want you to do that. And you don't have to do that. So here are some of these awkward questions, okay? Don't answer them out loud. One, why is it? Why is it that when a child has been sexually abused, and when they're an adult and they're trying to put this all together, trying to put the pieces together, why is it so difficult to shake that off? 
Why, why is it something that, that, that follows a person their entire life? In some cases, it even tilts them off their axis. So it's very difficult for them in any way to have relationships throughout the rest of their life. Why can't you just shake it off? Oh, yeah, some dirty old man touched me inappropriately, but that was years ago. It's just my past. Whatever, I'm moving on. Why is it so much different? And some people say, well, you know why? It's because it was betrayal by an authority figure. And that's just not it. Everyone gets betrayed by an authority figure. And the impact is nowhere near the same. If sexual behavior and sexual experience are just physical, then just shake it off. Put on your big boy pants and keep going. But it's not that simple, is it? Question number two, why is it that rape is so much more devastating to a woman than simply being beaten up? Why is it that a woman will report being beaten up but feels like she has to hold the secret of rape for her entire life? I can't tell anyone. If sex is just physical, then why is it not like being beaten up? You get slapped around. You report it. You adjust the relationship. You leave the bad memories behind and you go forward. But it doesn't work that way. Because sex isn't just physical. Question three. Why is it that men with the deepest sexual issues usually have uninvolved or absent fathers? And that usually, that usually is right up about 99.9% .9 of the time. Why is it that men who fall into basically any level of sexual addiction, something that has a real grip on them, why is it when they try to deal with the addiction part that that part that's holding so tightly onto them, when they, when they do that and they finally discover something more to that and they, and they ask the question, a what? A, mi a missing or an absent father? Well, why? That's a, that's a family of origin thing. That's way in the past. What does that have to do with an adult man who is in the grip of a sexual addiction? Well, the smart people can explain that but it's a predictable pattern. It follows a standard trajectory because sexual behavior and sexual identity is not just physical. It touches us and it is rooted in the deepest level of your being. And if you treat it, if you treat it like it's just physical, you hurt yourself. You hurt yourself at the deepest level imaginable. So maybe you've never heard that before. Maybe you didn't realize what was happening in you. Maybe you didn't realize what was happening in, in the life of someone who was close to you. Maybe you just had no idea that this is going on and the complexity that's actually in your life. Side note, let me just pass this on to you. This week I met with a counselor who's setting up shop. And she has agreed in this next little while to offer counseling at a highly reduced rate. $25 a session instead of the more typical $140 a session. I got some business cards from her. If you are interested, I am not a counselor. I can be a spiritual advisor. I can be a temporary coach, but I am not a counselor. I can get you put in contact with someone who can help you work some of this stuff. Why is it that most people's greatest regrets are sexual? Why is it that when you're a pastor or a counselor, or maybe even a friend, why is it when someone comes to me and they say, I want to meet with you, I want to talk to you. I want to tell you something that I've never told anyone before. It is never. I was at the mall, and I backed my car up, and I hit the guy behind me, and I left without giving my contact information. That's never the story. Why is it when they start down the path of, I've never told anyone before. I need to talk to you about something deep. I've been carrying this for a while. Why? Can I just sense in the air that it has something to do with sexuality? And the answer is simple. It's because you are your sexuality. And it's not just physical. And we live in a culture that wants to make it simple and wants to make it surface and, and physical and just fun. I didn't even know her name. <laughs> it was spring baked. We were both drunk. That was there. This is here. That was then. This is now. 
Let's just move along. That's the past. Now, I don't want any of you men to get nervous with this. This is not the 1920s, and I'm not a doctor. Most of you are familiar with a guy named Anton Stradivarii. Or maybe you at least know his work, the Stradivarius. Stradivarius is a well-known, highly respected instrument. And back in the mid-1700s in Cremona, Italy, his family, and specifically beginning with him, they started crafting amazing instruments. And it was viewed as almost a supernatural sound. The tone, the quality of the Stradivarius was just so unusual and special that so many people tried to make a copy of it. And no one has ever been able to duplicate it or replicate it. Maybe it's the wood. Maybe, maybe it's just the craftsmanship. But the sound of a Stradivarius especially in the golden age of the Stradivari family, was considered mystical, magical. So consequently, they are very fragile and very fine and very expensive, very sought-after instruments. Napoleon Bonaparte had a Stradivarius, and he actually sold it just, just very recently for $3.6 million. Has anyone here ever held or played a Stradivarius? No? Well, why don't you? Why don't we just pass it around? Everyone give it a taste. You know, touch it. And then when, when you're done with it, take it downstairs so the kids can all have a try. Okay? And then if you remember, see if you can remember to put it back in the case up here. Okay? And maybe, maybe if I can remember it, on the way out today, I'll pick it up and take it with me. Would anybody ever do that with a Stradivarius? No. Do you know, though, that we live in a culture full of people who do this with their sexuality all the time? Maybe you were one of those people. Maybe you were one of those people who do it with their sexuality, who share it around. Do you know how much more valuable to God you are than that piece of wood and glue? Do you know much, how much more fragile your sexuality is than a violin, no matter who made it or when they made it? That can be replaced. You, you cannot be replaced. You get to do life one time, only one time to manage this very, very important and fragile part of your life. That thing that makes sexuality deeper than just the physical is that God, God created sexuality as an expression of intimacy, intimacy to know and to be fully known. And when God created sexuality and sex, there was so much more going on. He created sex for animals, and there they go, that was fine. And then he said, for people, I'm going to take this to a whole nother level. It will not simply be about reproduction of the species, but it's going to be an experience with each other that is going to reflect what I want them to experience with me. It is going to be the ultimate expression of intimacy, full-on, passionate, fearless, vulnerable, know me as I am, no fear of comparison, no fear of evaluation, no fear of criticism, full on, passionate, coming together, and it's going to be like nothing else ever. It will be fragile. 
and it's going to be powerful, and I'm going to give it to the human race as a gift. And I hope they're careful with it, because as powerful as it is, and as fragile as it is, it can be broken. You know lots of people. You know some people who broke this. You know some people who abused this. You know women that are numb to the intimacy that was designed to go with sex. You know men who, because of their habits, have so detached sexual activity from intimacy that now they're married and they can't find intimacy in sex. And they wonder, what's wrong with them? And then they start to wonder, what's wrong with their partner? And their wife, who has become numb to the passion and power of sex, will start to think that maybe, maybe she married the wrong guy. And now they can both start looking outside their marriage because they are living out with full commitment again, the right person myth. Well, maybe I married the wrong person. And that starts them on a trajectory that does not lead to help. The real problem is something that they are not going to be able to appreciate because it happened before when they were younger and single and dating and no one ever told them about the lie that sex is not just physical. And they said, I'll take it. I'll do it. I want it. I'll have it. You know what? Forget it. I can do whatever I want with my body. It's mine and it's my choice. And someday I'll meet the right person that I want to spend the rest of my life with. And magically, mystically, everything is going to be just fine. And they were wrong. And they hurt themselves deeply. But you don't have to. You get to get it right. And here's the surprise, okay? You never saw this part coming. Yeah, the Bible talks about this. You should really read your Bible. Long before Antonio Stradivari, around 2,000 years ago, there was actually a guy who said just what I've been saying to you to a group of people who didn't know just like most people in our culture don't know. And people have said, they come back and forth and they say, don't have sex, don't do it. And somebody will ask the very legitimate question, why? And the answer has been, um, the Bible says so. And then they move on. In the scriptures, we find the answer as to why this is so important and why it's so fragile. And so now, if you're, if you're not a Christian um, and, and you want to push back against the whole idea of Christian morality, you know what? I can't convince you, all right? Let's just start with that. But I want to add a category to your thinking. Understand this. A long time ago, historically, not long time, long term, historically, Christianity is just a religion, right? So we put it in all the religions. Understand that religion in history had no interest in marital fidelity at all. Historically, religion has not said that sex is just between married people. Historically, religion has celebrated all kinds of sexual expressions, as many, more, most, prostitution, whatever. Historically, especially man-made religions, have always manufactured religions around sexuality. When Moses went up onto Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, every single pagan culture that was around them in that area celebrated sex in religion. There was no such thing as marital fidelity. They would have laughed at such an idea. Remember last week when we talked about this, what was the standard view of women? What was the standard view of power? That's what existed in that time. So let me ask you a question here, man. This is, this is a good men question, a guy question. If you're Moses and you're up on the top of the mountain, and you fully know that the whole thing is a story that you've been telling people, but they see you as some kind of prophet. They've given you authority over them, but you know the whole thing is just a sham you're pulling on them. And if they're expecting you to come down from the mountain with the words of God, the law of God, carrying the authority of God, you know the whole thing's made up, but they don't. What would you have written about sex? You would not have written what the law says about sex. You would have said, well, 
Since God said that I'm the leader and God talks to me, you need to follow me. You need to do what I say. You need to follow my direction. Now you'll have to do whatever I ask of you, so why don't you go ahead and form a line in front of my tent? You would have come up with what every single cult leader has come up with when it comes to sexuality. Think about all the cults that you've heard of. All the man-made religions have come into being in our lifetime. What do they all have in common? Some guy comes up with a sexual twist that allows them to have sex with multiple women and then use sex to keep the other leaders of the group interested and in line. And women become a commodity. When men manufacture religion, women are a commodity. It was true in ancient times, and it's true in modern times too. Yet Moses, he comes down from the mountain. He's met with God. He has the law of God, and he said, here's God's law. It's one man, one woman for life. And then the Apostle Paul, later on, he goes into the city of Corinth. Corinth is a pagan city. It's, it's the center of multiple international trade routes, okay? It was full of Greek thinking. It was full of Roman thinking. It was full of all kinds of thinkings. It was not Jewish in any way. And he went to the city of Ephesus, and he went to the city of Philippi, and he looked at the way these brand new Christians were managing sexuality, and he thought to himself, wow, no one ever told them. And because of that, he brought a teaching on sex that was not religious, because religion in those cultures, religion was not against sex outside of marriage. But God looked at this sin-broken, sin-soaked culture, and he said, someone has got to tell them. That's not what I designed it for. That's not how I designed it. So the Apostle Paul, in the city of Corinth, a city that's filled with multiple temples that all practice temple prostitution. He said to those tiny little gatherings, the little churches, the little ecclesias, he said, look, I know this might be painful, but I've got to explain to you what God, what God had in mind when he introduced this wonderful, this powerful, but this fragile thing we call sexuality. With that in mind, this is not the narrow-minded religious guy, Okay. He's the guy that's bringing truth in the middle of a broken world. And here's what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 18. He starts with, flee from sexual immorality. Don't resist it. Don't manage it. Don't negotiate with it. Flee from it. In chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, he's going to offer his, his more specific breakdown, his definition of what sexual immorality is. And he defines it as any sex outside of marriage. Flee it. Understand the order here. The law is not why you flee. It's not about breaking the law. The law is there to keep you from breaking yourself. Flee so that you do not become broken. The law is a loving warning. Then the next phrase, it's absolutely brilliant. It, it uncovers so much other stuff. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins people commit. Every other category of sin people commit. Now, now, this is kind of cool because he's about to tell us what we just discovered by going through those questions at the beginning. He's about to tell us from 2,000 years ago what we intuitively know even now in the 21st century when we really stop to think about it. He's about to say that sexual sin is like no other sin. It's like no other sin, not because God hates it more, not because God wants to judge you more, not because God is against fun. Not because it's a one-way fast pass to hell. Not because God won't like you. Not because God can't or won't forgive you. Sexual sin is like no other sin because of the depth to which it injures the offender and in many cases, the offended. All other sins people commit are outside their bodies. But those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. Here's what he's saying. And what, what would we expect God who loves us to say? When you sin sexually, you hurt yourself. Not only do you hurt yourself, but you hurt yourself at the deepest level imaginable. There are no band-aids for this kind of depth. You can't see it. You can only see the effects of it. You hurt yourself at levels that, that, might, that you might just carry for the rest of your life. 
and all the power that sex has for good and for bonding and, and that bringing together, that intimacy, they get turned upside down when the rules get broken. And then all the power that was meant for good and for bonding and intimacy gets inverted to pulling apart and shutting down and turning off insecurity, fear, and a general disillusionment with the world and people. There is no category of sin like sexual sin when it comes to the ongoing consequences to a person's life. He says other stuff to a culture, a culture that just didn't know, like our culture today just doesn't seem to know. A little bit earlier, verse 16, he says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? He uses a word that shocks his audience, and it should probably shock us too. Let, let, let me just tell you what the Corinthian readers, um, what they were thinking when they heard this phrase. When there's that little tiny Greek word that's in there, and it's translated as unites, they said, wait, 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 wait. Hold on a second, Paul. No one is doing any uniting, all right? You misunderstand what's happening. We're just having sex. It's just physical, man. That word you used here, Paul, maybe you just don't know what it means. Maybe you don't know how we normally use this word, but that word means like glue. It's like super glue. It's like permanent. It's like bonding. It's like intertwined. Like two become one. It's mixing like scrambled eggs. It's together. But I just went down to the temple to have sex with a prostitute. I wasn't uniting with her. It's just a physical one-time thing. I get up. I walk away. Look, nothing's attached. And Paul said, I know that's what you think. But it's because you don't understand sex. When you have sex with a person, there is a sense of permanence. You become one with that person. One? No, no, we didn't become one. I just had a little too much to drink. It's spring break. I was just doing what all my girlfriends were doing. There was no one. I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul says, but that's just not the way that it works. You don't know. Nobody told you. It's not just physical. It's as deep and as personal and as soulish as anything imaginable. And God designed it that way. You were designed to become one with one. And when you continue to become one with person after person after person after person, you damage your intimacy factor. You damage what God intended for you to experience. You disconnect sex from what it was intended for. And ladies, women... Over time, you will become numb. And you will wonder why your husband can't awaken this thing in you that you had expected. And you'll wonder what's wrong with him. And it may be, it may be that you have damaged something that is so fragile that it might just take a while. It might take a long time. It might take a lifetime to repair. Single people, you can skip that. That's why we're taking the time to talk about this. Then Paul goes all the way back to the very beginning, back to Genesis. The very first time that sex is mentioned in the Bible, the very first time it's described, um, for it is said, and what he's saying there is, as in Moses wrote down that God said this, the two will become one flesh. And there's our intimacy word again. That's what sex is all about. It's all about individuals becoming a one. A one that cannot be unwound. It's not just physical. It's something more. And Paul goes on and he addresses the Christians in the audience. And he says in verse 19, do you not know? Yeah, there's that again. Don't you know? Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? And the answer is no. I did not know that. I thought that my body was my body. I will do with my body what I want. And God lives above me in heaven. And I do whatever I want with my body down here on earth. 
And then if there's an issue, I go to church and I ask for forgiveness from God who seems to like to visit church buildings. And then I go back to doing whatever I want with my body. And Paul says, did your mama not tell you? Did no one ever make this clear to you? If you are a Christian, your body is inhabited by the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. If you are a Christian, then all that you are belongs to God because you have been bought at a great price. That means that your body is not your body. That means you can't just do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it with whoever you want to do it with and think that you have to answer to no one. You have been purchased. You have been redeemed. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Do you want to know how to manage your sexuality or your behavior? Here's the standard. You honor God. You ask God, guide me forward. How best, as I am right now, how best can I honor you with my body? Specifically, in the context of who I am, how do I best honor you with my sexuality? If I'm married, if I'm single, if I'm divorced, if I'm a teenager, how best do I do that, God? God, speak to me that you might also speak through me. Now, I realize that this teaching runs up against some pretty hard-held cultural beliefs. I know this is a hard teaching. Here's another one of those myths, one of those hard-held cultural beliefs. Myth number one, what, what's good for you is not good for me. That's good for some of you church people, but you know what? I'm free. I'm free to do what I want. You know why? Because all sex and all sexual behavior is always a preference. But think about this. It's not really a preference. And here's how you know. Because the outcome and the consequences are predictable. I like this kind of music. You like that kind of music. Doesn't matter. I like to eat this kind of food. You like to eat that kind of food. Doesn't matter. But think of it not so much like that. But think of it like nutrition. You might prefer McDonald's at every meal. You might prefer more vegetables and no red meat. They are preferences, but the outcome is predictable because of design. Sex is not a matter of personal preference. Sex is a matter of divine design. God made it. God made it in a certain way, and God made it to work in a certain way. That is why there are consequences if you don't pay attention. Here's myth number two. This one's probably more popular. Practice makes perfect. You don't believe this one, do you? Like the more sexual partners you have, the better you'll perform at sex. And then when you get married, you have practiced so much that you'll say, wow, this is awesome. We're the best. We're like sex Olympians. You know what, honey? I am so glad that you practiced with so many people before we met. I know, right? I'm so glad you practiced too. Thanks for think of, thinking of me in advance by having sex with lots of different people. I know you love me now. It just sounds ridiculous if you say it like that. But some people you know. Some people in this room have thought that I need to know more so I won't be embarrassed when it really matters. I know this. I've had so many premarital coaching sessions. I've heard the questions that come up. I've been married in December for 20 years. Woo-hoo! Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. You can continue to pray for Cheryl. Um, and I, I've been involved in numerous weddings, and I've been involved in far more nu- numerous premarital coaching sessions. And let, you, let me give you the, the, the benefit of my totally uncool advice. Look stupid together. Even if you have to fake it, look stupid. It's not like playing the violin. 
If you want to learn to play the violin, you're going to need to practice. And here's the thing. You are really, really smart. You will be able to figure out sex without a single lesson. You can figure it out with a single, without a single practice test run. Here's the truth that nobody in our culture wants to admit or to talk about. Romance in marriage is fueled, empowered, brought to life by a sense of exclusivity. Romance does not come from a skill that you have developed. Nobody wants to get comparative notes that say, hey, do you know who can do that so much better than you? Stumble around in the darkness together. You know what? That might even be fun. Figure it out together. Exclusivity is I waited for you and you waited for me. I have been praying for you and waiting for you before I even had a face or a name to associate to you. I only have eyes for you. I am able to give all of me to all of you. That fuels romance in marriage. It's not a well-practiced skill set. That's just a lie. And it's a lie that we want to believe. And it understands the purposes and the point of sex in all the wrong ways. Romance in marriage is fueled by exclusivity. And if that's true, then what would you expect God, who loves you, to say about sex? Do you think that he would say, hey, go ahead, have as much sex as you can. And then when you get married, we'll flip that magic switch that changes all of your established patterns, all of your ways of thinking, so that you can now be exclusively attached to one person. Is that even possible? Is it so odd that so many remain unfulfilled in their marriages because they have messed with their intimacy factors for years and years before they said, I do? Now, I know a message like this is going to land in a whole bunch of different places, and there's going to be a whole bunch of different feelings. There's going to be, it doesn't apply to me. I've never had that. Some people, there's going to be guilt. There might be regret. Somebody might say, I wish that I'd heard this before. But what we need now is the plan going forward, okay? That's the point. First, you need to decide what story you want to tell going forward. At some point, you're going to meet a special person, and you're going to have a story to tell. I strongly suggest that you decide the story that you want to tell now. And then you live in such a way that you will be able to tell that story. Because everyone has a story to tell. And many, many people lie. A lot. And here's the truth. The lie doesn't work long term. The lie barely works short term. And on the other side of the lie is pain. There's hurt. There's broken feelings. There's a lack of trust. There's disillusionment. There's disappointment. So if any of those words are what you want in a relationship, well then please, stay away from my boys. Why do people lie? Because they don't like their story. They don't like the story that they wrote. I don't want to lose my special friend, and so instead, I lie. So decide now. What story do you want to tell? But then think about it from the other side. Think about it like this. What is the story that you want to hear? If you're going to become the person that you're looking for is looking for, then you need to have a story that says, I heard, I learned, I have changed. There is a date, and I can tell you that Jesus changed the way that I live. I said it to him, and I vowed it that I would honor God with my body, and in doing that, I began to honor you. That's the story you want to hear. Second thing, you need to decide ahead of time what honoring God with your body looks like. You cannot do this in the moment. You need to decide before you ever get there. It's like a budget. Okay, I'm saving for a new car, so when I go shopping, I can't buy things because it's not in my budget. It's pre-decided. I don't have to think about it. You need to find a sex budget or a body budget. These are pre-decided. 
things that you've already decided so you don't have to try and think when your brain has stopped working. What will I not do? Where will I not go? When temptation arises, you can say, too bad, I already decided. No, I don't need to think about it anymore. Remember also, love does not pressure or push. So if you're getting pressured or pushed, there's your first alert. This is not going where I want to go. This is going out of my budget. This will change the story that I want to be able to tell the person I'm looking for. And giving up something for now, for something better later, that's not called sacrifice. That's called investment. This is part of the story that you want to tell. Every time you say no, you are making an investment in your story and in your future partner. This is not a message of condemnation today. Please do not hear it in any way like that. This is a message of love. You matter so much to God. And God loves you so much that he has in place a plan to redeem you, to buy you back out of the pain and the misery that your sin has brought you. Run in his direction. Make some difficult choices. Then trust him for your future. Remember last week I challenged you to consider the renew your mind, change your habits, plan, no dating for one year. Here's a letter from a lady who fully invested in that plan. Like many, I grew up in a broken home. And at the age of five, my mother moved us almost a thousand kilometers from my father. When I was 12 years old, I got the talk from my mother. And while I do recall her encouraging me to wait until I found someone I loved, there was no encouragement to save sex until marriage. All I knew about sex was what my friends were doing, and this knowledge took me into, high school, into my high school years with a constant state of numbness, giving myself away to every boyfriend I had. During my first year of university, I began surrounding myself with different people. My friends and I started attending church, and it became a routine for me to listen to messages online. And one night, I found myself listening alone in my dorm room. I wasn't remotely prepared for what I was about to hear. I can remember everything about that night. It was a moment of truth in my life and my largest milestone to this day. I was in tears, writing notes like a madman. And I was slapped in the face with the truth about sex and the shallowness of my relationship with God was revealed. I finally realized the connection between my experience with sex and my life of numbness. My intimacy factor was gone. Everything became real when you gave the one-year challenge. I had no idea how I was going to do it. But I printed out my notes, grabbed a pen, and wrote, November 6, 2007, no dating for one year, no sex until marriage. And then I signed it. The very next day, I wrote in my journal, I made it one day, God. It was the most challenging thing I had ever been faced with. There were so many guys floating around in my life, I had to cancel my text messaging. And slowly I began to feel sensitivity to my sin. Just one month after stepping up to the plate with God, I already began to feel him work in my heart. A few months later, an old high school acquaintance contacted me through Facebook. He was currently working as a youth minister and noticed through my online bio that I had changed. He asked to hear my story. And I told him about my November 6th commitment. He became someone who spoke truth into what God was showing me and helped me with the messes I was still caught up in. With complete purity and altruism in his heart, he led me closer to God. When November 6th rolled around, he asked me out on a date. I went, 
But after our date, I told him I just wanted to be friends. Four months passed, as well as a few dates with other guys, and we ran into each other again. I was so excited to see him. I had thought a lot about the lack of substance in the previous dates I had been on. We continued to talk, and I slowly saw it all come together. I saw the beauty of what God wanted to do through our lives. He was a virgin and had made the commitment when he was young to stay pure until marriage. I felt unworthy of that. He had a lifestyle that I desired, but I didn't feel deserving of, and yet he wanted to bring me with him. I saw Jesus in him. I was precious to him. It was in April 2009, a year and five months after my purity commitment, that I saw God's plan unfolding and we began dating. Our love story continued on for a little over a year and in July 2010, he asked me to marry him. Our relationship is founded on friendship and faith and I felt God's confirmation. We set our marriage date exactly three years after God changed my life. Saturday, November 6, 2010. We have now celebrated five years of marriage and I'm in tears thinking of what we have been through. If it wasn't for that year thing and all God changed in my heart, not only would I be incapable of loving him the way he deserves to be loved, I probably wouldn't have him at all. We are so thankful to God for calling us into bigger stories than the ones we have written for ourselves. Thanks for listening. Relationship with you. Forgiveness for you. Power to live for you. And now let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. It's better when you're here. It's better when we're together. Thanks for being part of this today. Thanks for helping us to celebrate. And I believe the more that we connect, the better it gets.